Hey, welcome back to Crimes and Closets. This is Beth in my closet in North Carolina. And this is Christy in my closet in St. Louis. What's going on? Good morning, Christy. How morning. are you? Good. And you? I'm good also. I was just wanting to know how the kids are at school. Because now they're back. Hey. They are back, um, and they've had a fantastic week. Xavier was um, very annoyed at the beginning of the week because he didn't have any of his real good friends, he said. Oh, yeah, that's his a class. bummer. Um, but he did. He ended up having one that um, he gets along with pretty well. And anyways, but he there's one that he really wants in his class. So the, let's just be honest. There was one kid that was not in his class, and he was annoyed. And because, oh. yeah, they are not even allowed to play at – recess because you have to stay with your class oh no oh because of like tracing harder. and stuff yes Ugh, covid so he was just like ugh, you know moping around the house mm-hmm. on sunday and then monday was just like whatever but now i think because he's realized okay i've got some friends and he i think he really likes his teacher she's new to the school this year she taught somewhere else nice so I think he's he's in better spirits as the week has gone on. That's good. That's good. And everyone else is I have happy. to tell you, if you and I weren't went to school together and we didn't get put in the same class, I would be super salty <laughs> about it. <laughs> like, I quit. Yeah. I quit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I get it. And this one particular friend's parents pulled him to homeschool him towards the end of last year so that oh. he wasn't in school right. either then. And so he was, like, bummed about that and, you know. So it was like, yes, he's coming back. Oh, he's not in my class. The woes (laughs) of a fifth grader. Yeah. So my kids are loving school and there's just like all these positive cases coming, popping up. And my kids have not, thankfully, oh my gosh, fingers crossed, knock on wood, all the things throw salt over my shoulder like whatever I need walk backwards take a sip of rope I don't know (laughs) whatever I need to do like they have not been exposed to anybody who is like tested positive or anything but we do have cases in our school already only one weekend and so I'm like terrified every day I don't want to open my email I'm not answering my phone like I'm skirt I'm skirt right yeah I don't I I mean I could be wrong on this but I haven't heard of any cases clearly there's got to be well, the we're only the first weekend, so maybe there's not. But I don't know that they're going to, like, send emails out for everything. I feel like you're only going to know and get it if it, like, pertains Oh, that would be nice. Our school's so small. I think that's why yeah. they do it. They're like, th- just so y'all know, there is a positive case in second grade or right. whatever. Yeah. So, <clears throat> anyway. And some of the positive cases that have happened are siblings. Mm. So I'm like, huh, what is their mother's number? Speak to her. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It happens. They're kids. Yeah. It's going to happen. It's okay. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All we can do is get vaccinated and wear masks and do the salt throwing and walk backwards and fingers crossed and all that stuff. <laughs> and I'll keep drinking rosé. Yeah. All day. <laughs> Hashtag. Cheers. All right. So this is our last episode before Serial Killer September. Mm-hmm. So it's a coming, and we're real deep and real dark, and it's going to be a fun month. There's going to be a merch code. Come check that out once Serial Killer September starts. But this is a special episode that was chosen yes, by y'all. Mm-hmm. So let's get into it. All right. I'm ready. 
All right. So murder suicide. Murder suicide Monday. (laughs) 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 All right. I'm going to start and I'm going to preface this story by saying it's I was torn by this story in the end. I had already researched it. I had written it up. Or no, I was starting to write it up, and I was like, I don't know, should I use it? Because we were tasked with reporting on murder-suicides. And when I think of that, I think more of, and I mentioned this to you, like a psychotic person who's like pissed off, kills people because they're pissed out of rage or vengeance or revenge, and then they're about to get caught, and then they're like, well, I'm going to kill myself because it's the coward way out and whatever. And that's, I guess, more along the line of like a true crime kind of story. To right. me, for a podcast. Kind of like that bad Santa case. Killed right. everybody okay, at that yeah. party. And then, like, later on was going to get caught. And so he kills himself. But this is kind of... I mean, it is that. But it's not like that. Because while this person did kill others, which is a crime, he had a mental illness. He was depressed. And he dealt with that for a long time. And that's what led for to him, him to commit this crime and it makes it really sad because they've committed the crime as their final act and all because they couldn't get the help that they needed Mm. and so like I said they killed people but anyway you'll understand I guess when I go ahead and tell it because I decided to go ahead and use the case but more so maybe it'll bring more awareness and light to this subject And I'm going to also say, if you or anyone you know exhibits any symptoms of depression or thoughts of harming themselves, please get help. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255, and it provides free and confidential support for people in distress. So, start with that. Good. With that, here's their story. Tao, and I will not pronounce these names wrong. I'm really sorry. I mean, I will pronounce them wrong. Not a lot. (laughs) I thought you were just putting that out in the universe. Like, will not not mispronounce these names. Got it. Okay. (laughs) I will. Tao Hodol and Iron Islam married about 25 years ago in Bangladesh. They were born and raised there, but in different places. Tao Hodol was from Dhaka, which is like kind of in the center of Bangladesh. And Iron is from Pavna, which is about four and a half hours like west of Dhaka. And I don't know how they met. I don't know if this was an arranged marriage. I don't know any of the details. All I know is that they got married. Done. A few years into their marriage, Tao Hadil and Iron came to the U.S. on a diversity immigrant visa, which is basically exactly how it sounds. The U.S. is trying to diversify the immigrant population from countries with low numbers of immigrants and they kind of base that on like previous five years of them immigrating. And so it's a lottery. You fill out an application and you just hope you get picked. So they were selected and initially moved to New York, but only lived there for two years before moving to Texas. Allen, Texas, to be exact, which is about 25 miles north of Dallas. Tao Hadol worked in IT when he first arrived, but... More recently, he held a pretty high position at Citibank. So, Iron stayed home and took care of the home and the children that they eventually had. They had three children altogether. Tanvir, who was born around 2000, Farhan, and his twin sister, Farbin, who were born around 2002. And guaranteed, that's not how you say those names. Okay. You did, you did well. Good job. We'll see. 
<laughs> All who knew the family said they were a happy family who always seemed to be having fun. One person mentioned they were always making fun of everything. I don't know what that meant, but fine. They're making fun of everything. They're jokesters. Okay. Good job. Um, they were well-liked in their community. In 2019, Iron moved her mother, Altafun, which that's it. I love that name because every time I read it, I wanted to be like, she just has all the fun. (laughs) (laughs) Which it sounds like they did. (laughs) All to fun. She moved her to the U.S. to live with them. And but she was supposed to return to Bangladesh on April 7th of this year. But COVID delayed her travel back there. So, okay. In April of 2021, both Tanvir. Oh, wow. This is right now. This this happened in April. Okay. Mm -hmm. Tanvir and Farhan were attending the University of Texas, and Farben had just gotten, so that's the twin sister, she had just gotten a full scholarship to attend NYU, I believe, for next year. Okay. All of them super smart, bright futures ahead, like, you know, anyway. Around late Sunday night, April 4th, on my birthday. Your birthday. Hello. Okay. Or... Could possibly have been very early Monday morning. Not entirely sure. It's not. It's not very clear. A friend who was concerned that someone in the house in there in the town Hedol, uh, Iron, Farben, Farhan, and Altafun, and Tenvir, that household, <laughs> they were concerned that someone in the house was suicidal. So they called the police. The police responded and went to their home around 1 a.m. on Monday, April 5th. They arrived to find the bodies of 54-year-old Tanhadol, 56-year-old Irin, 77-year-old Altafun, and 19-year-olds Farhan and Farbin in the home. And the entire family was dead. All shot. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. The friend who had called the police, yeah, I believe... I going to ask some questions about the friend. Okay. Yes. I believe saw a social media post on Farhan's Instagram page. And it seemed that he had linked to his profile that was labeled suicide note. Oh. And then when you clicked that link in their profile, it brought you to an 11-page letter detailing everything that okay. happened. And just because I'm confused with the names, that guy, Farhin, mm-hmm. that's the son? That's one or of the, yes, one okay. of the sons, it's one, one of the, of the younger. Okay. It's the twin. Okay. Yes. Um. So he starts out the letter by saying, hello, everyone. I killed myself and my family. Yes. Okay. He goes on to make four major points as he describes them. The first of which is getting help for mental illness. He remembers the date of the first time that he cut himself in 2017. He was a teenager and he used a pair of craft scissors. And you know how those are like kind of for like younger kids and so they're pretty dull Mm -hmm. so he used these dull craft scissors to to try and cut himself which took a while to actually break the skin but he remembers it very detailed and how he did this and then that would escalate to him doing it basically multiple times a day oh goodness okay but with different scissors he mentions how people say that they're there for you if you need to talk, but then they end up just running away when they realize how hard it is and that you can't just fix a depressed person. It's true. It is true. He finally hit a breaking point and cuts himself pretty badly and ends up talking to his dad about it, who immediately jumps into action and tries to get him help. He sends him to a teen mental health camp 
where he's finally diagnosed with depression and put on medication. And all of it seems to help because they also give him some coping mechanisms like, you know, journaling and whatever. So he seems to think, all right, things are looking up because he's still a teen. He's in high school. He mentions, um, I don't remember if this was his junior or senior year, but at some point, I think it was senior year, he mentions that all of a sudden he like lost weight and he becomes cool in school and gets a girlfriend that's completely out of his league, but he lands her and whatever and everything. He's having the best year of his life. Yes, his senior year. He says his life was perfect, but that did not change the fact that he was depressed and would still have the urge to cut himself. And that... Right really, really bothered him. Like, why do I feel this way when everything is perfect? Like, why Mm -hmm. can't I just be happy? Yes. He started college and moved in with three of his friends and tried to go through the motions, but just hated every minute of it. Didn't, it didn't matter. It didn't matter how well he was doing. He was just not happy. And so he said he had a breakdown at the end of the first semester, which wasn't one of his worst ones. He said he ended up just like crying and screaming and like punching walls for like a night, but to him, that was not oh, gosh. the worst kind of um, breakdown that he could have. He says his roommates and sweetmates knew he was in rough shape. His roommate, however, felt as though it, he was more of a joke. Like, he was depressed. Too, like, he said his roommate said he was depressed, too, but he didn't need medication because he had willpower. And you're just too weak. And, yeah, I mean, whatever. Mm-hmm. So that brought him to his second point in his letter about people who also think they're depressed, but they really aren't. And he wasn't really trying to like say like, you know, nobody else is depressed but me. But he was just saying that there's people out there, you know, you're broke. You broke up with your girlfriend and you get upset. You failed a quiz and you get upset and you say the words that you're so depressed, but you're not. You're just upset about that moment that's happened. There's a big difference in being like sad and morose and down in the dumps and being clinically depressed. Right. Exactly. So he was like, you know, I'd have people that would say, I'm going to kill myself because they had a physics test that day that they forgot about. And he made a point of saying that depression is when you feel such sadness that you get to the point where it interrupts your sleep and prevents you from doing what you like and your, all of your hobbies for weeks at a time. It's not just like that day, you don't feel like doing anything and you get up. I mean, and that can happen too, but it's like, it's more than just, oh, I'm mad and sad about this test. So he got to a point where he just didn't care about school at all. And he needed to have a will to live before he wanted to strive for that diploma. So he ends up at some point telling his sweet mate, because the sweet mate was um, concerned about him and knew that he was not doing well. And decided to talk to him, but he told him details of a plan he had. And I think he may have told him all of this, but it's not very clear if he gave every single detail. But I think it freaked the sweet mate out because within a couple of weeks, Farhan believes that he was evicted from the dorm. Like he went to somebody, told them, and they kick him out. Oh. The college in interviews say that he withdrew from school and voluntarily in January of 2021 and canceled his housing contract on his own. But he believes otherwise. He is saying that they kicked him out Mm -hmm. because of concerns. Interesting. mm -hmm. I don't know which is true. After he drops out, he's just watching TV with his older brother, Tanvir. Like for literally weeks, they just sit around watching TV. His brother is apparently also depressed and socially anxious, according to him, but a genius. And he's like, 
he's he's like genius level and can't do anything about it because he's so socially anxious and depressed. And so he said, and he was kind of going through it on his own. Like he didn't talk about it. Whereas Mm -hmm. Farhan actually got to the point where he was talking about it with people. And he's like, if I didn't have my older brother, I probably would have committed suicide long before, but we started talking about it. Mm. So they started to watch the office every day. Which brought him to his third point, which was how The Office should have ended after Michael Scott has l- had left the show. Which, he goes into this lengthy reason why, which is just a strange thing, but I guess that's part of it all. Like, not you're not rational about Yikes. what you're... You're explaining this suicide, murder-suicide, and one of your points is about The Office. Clearly, he's not. Because he's like, the people just need to know. Yeah. I mean, it was lengthy, like specifically why they should have ended the show. Anyway, so it's the end of February of 2021, and his older brother comes to him at one point and says, okay, so if we don't fix things within a year, let's kill ourselves and our family. Clearly, though, they did not wait until that year was up because it was just over a month later that the family was found dead in their home. They felt things were just so bad that they didn't even want to wait a whole year. So they put their plane in motion, which brings him to his fourth and final point, which was gun control in the U.S. is a joke. They walked into a gun store one day, expressed their desire to have a gun for home defense, filled out some papers, and that was it. He said there was a question about mental illness and whether or not you were on medication, but he's like, we lied and checked no. Yep. And that was it. As one does. Mm-hmm. So he says in the last few minutes of his life, he decided to donate his money to a GoFundMe, but then goes off on how the algorithm for GoFundMe keeps the most funded projects up on top. And he scrolled for 20 minutes and couldn't find one that had less funding than $35,000. So he got pissed and ended up donating, a, donating to a charity instead, which was like another tangent that like, you were like, what? This is okay. And this is the end of his letter, essentially. And his final statement is, and now we're here. Well, I guess my family and I aren't, but you get the point. And that's how it ends. Wow. And they just, and oh, and why did they decide to kill everyone? Because this was in the letter too. I just kind of skipped over it at one point. They felt they were doing them a favor. They wouldn't have to live with the feelings of despair, guilt, or any feeling of not being able to do anything to stop them. So he took them with him so none of them would ever feel sad again. Or his words. Okay, so he felt that he was doing them a kindness. Yes. Wow. Because they would just have this, even if they got to the point where they got, like, over it, quote unquote, un- over it, it would still always be in their heads, like, we didn't do anything, we couldn't do anything to stop it. And there would still be that sadness. So he just thought, they, nobody will feel sadness ever again if we just take Ooh, everyone dog. Yeah. That's a so, lot to unpack. Yeah. Um, again, not a typical, I feel like, true crime kind of story. That's which is why I struggled with it. But at the same mm-hmm. time, I was like, I feel like it needs to be told. Yeah. Because that's just sad. It's sad. It's very sad. That's mm-hmm. extremely sad. It's all true, sadly, to everything that he said about how people like to sweep depression under the rug or minimalize it or, you know, scared of it even in a way. Right. 
and not take it seriously. Right. Like, Oh yeah, you're depressed. I'm depressed too. Right. So, wow. That's heavy. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) That's really sad. That poor family and innocent people and the boys, the brothers, you know, it's interesting too how so many of these murder suicides are also we were talking about this before family annihilators. Yeah, right. And it's very common. Well, I shouldn't say it's very common, but it is common for family annihilators to also want to take other people with them. They kill their family for the same reason. They feel like they're doing them a kindness or they're saving them for something. Mm-hmm. It's really very narcissistic kind of yes for them to yeah. feel that way you you see that a lot in women women mm-hmm. who kill their families and then themselves is because they think that no one can go on without them right yeah and so like like he said you're gonna be so sad when we're gone so we're just gonna help you and so you don't have to be sad right you can't live yeah. without us you'll be too sad yeah yeah that's true which is there just was- further proof of mental illness yeah, in a real right. big way. So exactly. And there was a an article that or in a couple articles there was a study that was mentioned. I want to say it was like done at UNC, but maybe I'm wrong on that. Um that it's very uncommon for them to for it to be like two people in the same family that like carry out an act like this. Mm-hmm. But typically if there are more than one person, like there's one that's a leader that like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. sparks it and ends up fully carrying it through, even if the other person was like, well, yeah, I kind of want to go through with this, but not really. Like, this was just like us talking or something, which we don't know was the case, but could very well have been. Yeah, no, it sounds to me like that's exactly what happened. Right, yeah. And is a good segue to my case. Oh, wow. (laughs) We got another one. They're very similar. We have another one. That's funny how it's similar kinds of cases. Mm -hmm. It is. It's somewhat similar, yes. Um... Real heavy, <laughs> real sad. This is a well-known case. I know you know it. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew it too, but I definitely learned a lot more in my research. And we're doing short stories today, shorter, because we're doubling up. So I, I leave a lot out. So like, don't come at me. I know I'm leaving stuff out. It's time constraints. Um, but anyway, so mine is about the heart family. Mm. Yes. Okay. So just some background. Jennifer and Sarah Hart were both born in 1979 in South Dakota. Their birthdays were just a few months apart. They both attended Northern State University, which is in Aberdeen, South Dakota, and they both majored in elementary education. And that is where they met and developed a romantic relationship. Sarah graduated in 2002 And when she graduated, you know, she left the university. So Jennifer, or Jen, that's what she goes by, she also ended up leaving. But she never actually graduated herself. Sarah graduated, Sarah left, and Jen was like, well, I have to go with you because I love you. Mm -hmm. According to the couple, they initially were closeted and claimed to just be roommates. And when they finally did decide to come out and be open about their lifestyle, they claim that they were ostracized by their family and their community. So in two, the family denies this, by the way, Mm. in 2004, the couple moved to Minnesota. 
And in 2005, Sarah petitioned for a name change. She was born Sarah Gangler, Mm -hmm. and she changed her last name to Hart to match Jen's last name. Okay. They but they didn't were, get married or anything. Um, they do later. Yes, oh, okay. they get married okay. later, and um, later on in their relationship, they do end up getting legally married. The Hearts um, decided they worked for like odd jobs, department stores, and things like that, and they decided that they wanted to have children, and so they began the process of fostering. They fostered a 15-year-old African American girl for a few months because they were friends with people who were fostering her and it wasn't working out. So they decided to take her in. They were just in their early 20s at this time, and the girl Mm. was 15. Oh, oh. So that dynamic is a little weird. Um, And it didn't work out. Older sister-ish. Right. It's exactly what it is. So it just didn't work out. They had a lot of complaints about her and like her behavior and kind of weird things to be quite honest and they took her to her therapy appointment one day and just never came back and the therapist had to inform this young lady that she would no longer be living with the hearts and just dropped her off just dropped her off and they were like we're not coming back for you so how heartbreaking for her Mm -hmm. um and about a week later one week later in march of 2006 three African-American siblings from Texas were placed in their care. So it's almost like they had this one young lady. They had plans of adopting these three other kids and she just wasn't in their plan anymore. So, you know, they were like, we're done with you. We're going to get some more. So this was Marcus, who was born in 1989. Hannah, who was born in 2002. And Abigail, who was born in 2003. So again, their oldest is only like 10 years younger than them. Yeah, they're definitely not. um, Well, they were born in 79, so 20. Right, but you said 89. No, 98. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say that. Marcus was born in 1998. Sorry. Thank you for that for me. Wow, he's old. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Okay, 98 is when he was born. 98, 2002, and 2003. Okay, so during that time in 2006, Jen quit work and became a stay-at-home mom to the three children, and Sarah went on to become a manager at the department store. In June of 2008, so this is a couple years later, the Hearts adopted three more African-American siblings from Texas. So this is Devante, who was born in 2002, Jeremiah, born in 2004, and Sierra, born, born in 2005. Wow. Then in 2009, the year later, Jen and Sarah were legally married in a ceremony in Connecticut. So here we have this seemingly happy, progressive family of eight living in Minnesota. We have working mom, Sarah, stay at home mom, Jen, and their six beautiful adopted African-American children who had found their forever homes with these two lovely white mothers. Mm-hmm. However, cracks began forming. So it was very well known to anyone who was friends with the hearts that Jen was sort of the more outgoing, dominant person in the family. She's staying at home. She's at home. She's the stay at home mom. But also she's the one that didn't graduate. Correct. Okay. Right. Okay, so sorry. Sarah is the one that's working and she's known to kind of be reserved quiet. Um, She's not very open with people. She just kind of keeps to herself, hard worker, you know, 
She's definitely the more low-key one in the in the marriage. Okay. Can I ask, does it ever say why she doesn't use because elementary ed, like why she didn't get a teaching job? No, I don't actually know. I don't know why. That's a good right. question. I think she ended up graduating with a degree in like special education too. So right. Right. I don't know. Okay. So later in 2008, so this is the same year that they adopted the second set of siblings, mm-hmm. a teacher saw bruises on six-year-old Hannah's left arm. Mm. Hannah told her teacher that Jen had hit her with a belt. Authorities were called. People went out. The family seemed to be happy, well-adjusted. They couldn't find any evidence of abuse or anything like that. No legs to stand on. So, okay. Then again, in 2010, seven-year-old Abigail told her teacher that she had owies on her stomach and her backside. The teacher looked into it, and she actually did have a lot of bruising Mm. on, like, her butt and her belly. So authorities were called again, and this time there was really no getting around it. And Sarah ended up fessing up to causing the bruises on Abigail, saying that she was being punished. She was punishing her. She had bent her over the tub and spanked her, and that's where the bruises on her butt came from. The bruises on her belly may have been where she was bent over the tub. Sarah admits to letting her anger get the best of her and that she mishandled the situation. She was arrested. She was convicted of assault and was given one year of probation and community service. Oh, wow. So the kids just stayed right there. It's right there. Uh, Yeah. Hello. Are they legally adopted? At this point, they had been legally adopted. Yes. Mm -hmm. All six of them. So between November of 2010 and January of 2011, there were six calls made to authorities about suspected allegations of child abuse and neglect made against Jen and Sarah Hart. Six. In a period of what's that? Three months? Some of them came from friends of the family. Some came from school personnel, teachers, school nurses. Um, It was reported that the kids reporting abuse. The kids were saying that they weren't being fed, that food was being withheld for them. They were asking for food from their classmates, like on the regular. So all of this is reported. And every time authorities would look into it, but it was determined that there was no sufficient evidence to prove abuse or neglect. Why? (laughs) Despite the fact that Sarah had already been convicted of it. Right. Like, okay. So it was about that time that, you know, all this went down, this three-month period where all these allegations are being reported. The hearts were like, we're going to pull our kids out of public school. We're just going to homeschool. Which further isolates them. So that in itself, to me, is an admittance. Mm-hmm. The authorities should have been like, hello. Like, yeah, now they're scared because people are reporting them. But the family claims that they, as a whole family, were just being, like, persecuted and bullied because they were lesbian mothers with six African-American children. And people just didn't like them because of that. They were bullying them. Mm. So in 2013, the Hart family moved out of Minnesota and into a suburb of Portland, Oregon. The family, so Jen, around this time, she becomes very active on social media, Facebook specifically, and she's kind of known as like a master poster. She's constantly posting pictures of the family, of the kids, these big, long, um, written, you know, 
like narratives of their beliefs on racism and um, politics and parenting and adoption. And the family is also very active in the Portland community. They attend a lot of rallies and protests and festivals. And, you know, she's sharing all of this stuff on her Facebook. And it's like these wonderful, amazing things that they do and places that they go and pictures of the kids with, you know, at rallies with signs and, um, you know, just like so progressive. And I mean, they really were like, they were beautiful pictures. They really are like absolutely beautiful, lovely. They could be in magazines. I mean, they're just gorgeous pictures, but they're portrayed to just be this amazing, you know, family that's so loving. And they were, they were beloved by people who knew them. Like people would, were very familiar with the family at these festivals and rallies and things like that. And everyone really saw them as just brave and open and, But, you know, looking back, they didn't really have a lot of intimate interactions with people. Like, they didn't have people over to their house. Their kids were never really left with anyone. They didn't have play dates with other kids. You know, it was all just very, like, surface, Facebook or in public at these rallies. So the Minnesota police, after hearing about the Hearts moving to Oregon, they notified the state of Oregon of the abuse allegations. So Mm -hmm. at least they did that. Right, yeah. (laughs) And they interviewed, the Oregon authorities interviewed all six of the children separately. But during these interviews, each child denied any abuse or neglect. And they all would say things like they were so grateful to Jen and Sarah for changing their lives and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, um, so they, you know, interviewed Jen and Sarah and Jen claimed that these reports of abuse were false. These allegations were being, you know, they were being persecuted because again, they were a lesbian couple with African-American children and they were very vocal about social injustice surrounding people of color and the gay community and people just didn't like that about them. And so they were like picking on them and whatever. Medical exams were given to all, all of the children. Five out of six of the children were found to be much smaller than average, like not on the growth scale. They were all very tiny, but otherwise were found to be healthy. And, you know, they were like, look, we're vegan. We're vegetarian. That's why they're little, okay. which is ridiculous. But right. Yeah. So, again, no evidence subs- to substantiate abuse or neglect. I don't freaking know. I don't get it. <laughs> I know. In 2014, the family was attending a rally in Portland in protest of the verdict regarding the Ferguson, Missouri shooting. So mm-hmm. do you want to tell people about that briefly for anyone who doesn't know? I mean, I feel like everyone knows, but. <laughs> well, I mean, some people aren't from this country, but. Oh, well, that's true. But I'm, I'm not going to even lie. I remember the shooting, but I don't remember the reason. So honestly. Michael Brown, an African-American man, was shot by a white police officer. And it caused this big national debate on the unnecessarily police violence against people of color. Okay. Yeah. He, well, it was yeah, ruled to have been um, like he wasn't charged or convicted of any type of crime and you know, I can't remember the reason why he shot like, you know, like I know that there was a racially charged thing, but like, you know, like why did why was there a police for him you right know, there at the time? Yeah. That's what I can't remember. Right. OK, well, yeah. we don't even that's a whole yeah. different doesn't crime, matter. But, yeah. <laughs> OK, so during the protest, a photo was taken of then 12 year old Devante embracing a white police officer with like tears rolling oh, down his eyes. Yes, this was yeah. like a 
famous picture. The photo went absolutely viral. Mm -hmm. I mean, everywhere. It was all over the news. Um, The Huffington Post ended up writing an article about Devontae and his story. The photo is known as the hug felt around the world. Mm -hmm. Very famous photo. And the Hart family received a ton of attention as a result of this, like, this photo and their story, you know, again, these two white women, lesbian couple with these six adopted African-American children and just, you know, bonkers. So in early summer of 2017, the Hart family moved to Woodland, Washington. We don't know why that happened. Um, There's a bit of a gap in like what actually was going on in between. Like there's like a two year span where it's real confusing. We're not really sure what's going on, but um, they seem to be very happy in Portland and very involved in the community. So it's strange that they would pick up and just move to like this country town in Washington state. Mm. Sarah began, you know, she was continuing to work at a department store. Jen was still at home. Just a couple of months into their move in August of 2017, at 1.30 in the morning, their neighbors get a knock at their door, and it's 15-year-old Hannah Hart. Hannah was hysterical. She was begging for them to let her come inside. She was saying that she had climbed out of her second-story bedroom onto the roof and jumped down to escape her home because her parents were hitting them with belts. They were racist. They were abusing them. They, you know, she wanted, she wanted help. She wanted them to, she was like pleading for them. Like, please don't make me go back there. Please hide me. She's missing her two front teeth, which is super weird. She's 15. Right. Yeah. And so they bring her in, obviously, you know, and call 911. Mm -hmm. And a couple minutes later, they notice like flashlights going on outside and there's people yelling for Hannah. So they go out, it's Jen and Sarah. And they're like, we have her. You know, so they're like, okay, give her back. Just give her back, whatever. So I guess authorities come and they don't, I mean, again, there's nothing happens as a result of it. And like the next morning, the whole family shows up on this neighbor's doorstep and they are apologizing. They make Hannah write the couple a letter, like saying, I'm so sorry I disturbed you. I'm sorry I lied. I was mad because I wasn't getting my way. Um, oh, my goodness. And, you know, Jen, she she is, like, explaining everything away. Like, she has behavioral problems. She was a drug baby. So she has a lot of emotional behavioral <sighs> problems. That's a quote, her quote, not mine. I'm sorry. Um, that just annoys the crap out of me. Oh. You don't share that stuff just, like, on a whim with people. like, And you don't say it in that way if you Absolutely. know that that's your child's past so disrespectful it's it's on so many levels it's like Mm -hmm. the most offensive thing she said that her hannah's biological mom was bipolar and so you know she just she sold it she sold it she convinced them in front of all of the kids yeah she really convinced them that her and sarah were heroes that they were helping to give these children a better life and you know they would be so much worse off had it not been for her. And they're just trying to keep these troubled children in line as best they could, you know? You are not saviors. <laughs> no. <laughs> Stop. Absolutely Save your complex. <laughs> not a hero. No, no. No, they're not. <laughs> mm-hmm. In March of 2018, so this is, this happened in August 2017. This is March 2018. 15-year-old mm-hmm. Devante begins asking these same neighbors for food. 
He's saying that his parents were withholding food from them as punishment for sometimes days at a time. And he and his siblings were like starving. Mm -hmm. So, of course, they were like, yes, we'll give you food. We, you know, and they would give him food. And then he kept asking for more and asking for more. And he was asking that they would put this food in a box by their fence and not to tell his moms that they were doing this for them because they would just get in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so this went on for like eight, nine days that he kept Mm -hmm. coming, asking for food. And every time he would come and every time they would have an interaction, Devante would divulge more and more about what was going on in the home, about abuse. He told them Hannah wasn't lying. She had been telling the truth back then that the family, they were all being abused and starved and all this stuff. And this this couple, they just are like trying to get all of the information that they can. Finally, once they felt like they had enough information, they called authorities. They called the Washington State Police. They called the Washington State Department of Social Health and Services, which is like Child Protective Services, essentially. And authorities came out immediately. Mm. March 23rd, 2018, they were there. The car was parked in the driveway. They knocked on the door. Nobody answered the door. So they left paperwork and a card in the door, right? Like Mm. saying, you guys need to contact us, whatever. The next day, the car was gone. Gone. Mm. The Hart family never returned. So they, they knew they were being looked yeah i was gonna say that i feel like that was like the mistake on the authorities part was cluing them in that they were there right they should have never come back they should have sat right there well yeah sat right there or just come back at a different time like keep trying to come back instead of letting you know that i'm not i'm not there or i'm i want you guys to contact us like we came we're looking for authorities made a lot of mistakes in this situation well yeah this is not the first (laughs) right (laughs) On March 26th, so this is a few days later of 2018, a tourist in California notices an upside-down GMC Yukon at the bottom of a cliff, half in the ocean and half on the rocks. This is off Highway 1, which is right outside of Westport, California. So authorities were called. People came out. Inside were the bodies of two white women and three African-American children. The bodies were identified as 39-year-old Jen and Sarah Hart, 19-year-old Marcus Hart, 14-year-old Jeremiah, and 14-year-old Abigail. Okay, where's the others? So three of the kids are missing. We're missing Hannah, Devante, and Sierra. So missing, missing um, children reports were filed for all three of them. And the cops went into investigating what in the world happened to these people that they did have. The location where the vehicle had gone off the road was a it was a 100 foot cliff. It was about 90 to 100 feet. Mm. And at the bottom of it was the ocean, the Pacific, the Pacific Ocean. So there was this space of land. And I'm going to post a picture of this because it is interesting where it's like, here's the highway. And then there's like a jutting out piece of land that's like dirt or gravel Mm -hmm. that separates the highway from this big cliff, okay? Okay. On Around the cliff, there were no guardrails, no wires, nothing, no protection Mm -hmm. whatsoever. So investigators determined that there were no skid marks, which indicated that brakes were not used. Mm -hmm. Jen had been the driver, and her blood alcohol level was a .102, which is over that legal limit of .08, 
And Sarah and the three children all had high levels of Benadryl in their system. Mm. Like not regular, like we have allergies and we're going to take Benadryl. It was high levels. So they believe that probably the children and maybe even Sarah were asleep. Mm. No seatbelts had been used. And based on the evidence at the scene and like the parameters of the fall and then the car's little black box, you know, which tells you all the things Mm -hmm. about where you've been and everything. It was determined that Jen had driven off of the road. She drove off the highway and she drove onto that gravel dirt area to the side and was about 60 or 70 feet from the cliff's edge. She sat there for a few minutes and then she gunned the engine to 90 miles per hour and drove right off the edge. Oh, my gosh. So the crash was listed as a murder-suicide. Yeah. Uh, okay. Super sad. But we still have no idea where the other three are? Right. So two weeks after the crash, they're still looking, trying to find these other kids. They kind of think they probably were in the car. Mm-hmm. But they don't know. They can't prove any of it. So two weeks after the crash, the body of 12-year-old Sierra was discovered not far from the crash site, just like she had been thrown from the car. Why did it take them two weeks to find her? Well, because it was the ocean. Far. So, like, oh. you know, she was taken by okay. the water. Okay. Um, six weeks after the incident, partial remains of 16-year-old Hannah were found washed up on a beach near the crash site. Mm. But the remains of 15-year-old Devante have never been found. Oh, my God. So they believe that he just kind of went into the ocean and because they didn't have seatbelts on. So they were thrown. Mm-hmm. And um, they just they never found his body. Um, a year after the crash, he was declared legally dead. So they do not believe that he is alive. They believe he was in the car and a part of the accident. They don't trial, think that there's a chance that he like ran away. Maybe or swam away or you know, you don't you don't ever know. Mm-hmm. A trial was held in April 2019 and a jury ruled that the children's death were was a homicide by their parents Jen and Sarah Hart and that Jen and Sarah's deaths were ruled as suicide. Wow, they had a trial? They did. Isn't that interesting? That I is think very interesting. Because they wanted that for the family to like, they can't give them justice because they can't prosecute the people who murdered them. Yeah. But they can legally say they were at fault. You were murdered. It was homicide. Do you know if any of their like, well, there it was two different birth families are aware like, oh, yes. Um, and they, okay, so they were able to, like, figure that. Well, I mean, I know it's in records and stuff like that, but they were contacted. The, well, I don't know about the first set, like, um, Hannah and Marcus and, um, oh, who was it? Hang on, and I'll tell you. So Marcus, Hannah, and Abigail, I don't know about their families. We don't have any information on their birth families. The other three... Um, Devante, Jeremiah, and Sierra. Okay, so they had an older brother named Dante who was not adopted by the Hearts because he had behavioral problems or something. Mm. And um, the way that they were adopted, this was a big thing in the story, actually, where, and I, I didn't put it in my notes just because that was one of those things that I didn't include for time's sake. But um, so their mother uh, was having substance abuse issues and custody of the four, there was four of them, was given to their aunt, 
Mm-hmm. And she had a really great, like, loving home for them. They were all doing really well. And something happened where the mother, the biological mother, came over and was let in. And a CPS worker was either made aware of that or saw it happen. Mm. And so custody was then taken from the aunt because it was seen as a violation because they weren't allowed to have any contact with their biological mom. And they became, they were put into the foster system. And all along, all throughout their fostering and their adoption with the hearts, the family was fighting to like bring them back to Texas. Mm -hmm. And then this ends up happening to them. So we have this biological mother who had been fighting for her children anyway, this Mm -hmm. aunt who, you know, was a loving, you know, parent to them, really. And then this poor older brother. Did he end up staying with the aunt? Or who he who ended was he up with? actually having? He was, I think he, no, he was taken away too. But he ended up, um, he went into the system like oh, he, gosh. he um, had I some mean, from luckily problems with the law and things them. like that. <laughs> well, yeah, but like, whew, I tell you what, carrying that around, it's like such a rippled, you know, right, I know. tragedy. I mean, it's just so sad. So, but I, so I do know that about them. Um, but I don't know about the other kids mm. and if their families were, I mean, they were siblings, so I would imagine. Right. And clearly they were taken the for news. a reason, but I didn't know if anybody from their biological family knew that this happened to their, I would, I mean, this was a big case, so it was on the news. So I would imagine that, um, if they saw it on the news, they very easily could be like, wow, that that's our family. Right. Yeah. So sad. Anyway. What an awful case. I mean, I, you did a fantastic job of consolidating all of that because yes. it is huge. And <laughs> I listened you. to like a six or 10 episode like podcast about it. Just there is you know. a documentary on them. It's a, there's books that have been written. There's um, it was extremely heartbreaking story. Yeah. I mean, n- nationwide, it was just so sad and well, yeah, seemed really avoidable i guess if i mean i guess i don't know these kids should never have been with them well no no i mean number one what you just said about the whole aunt like yeah she made a mistake but should they have been like sent and like adopted by somebody else like oh, maybe it should be temporarily put place somewhere else while we right. deal with the situation and that then is exactly that what should have happened Aunt was actually providing a loving home then why wouldn't she just get custody back but anyway because I'm sure the biological mom had gotten several chances before they were taken from her. And so this seems like a minor offense to me, allowing right. her to visit. I agree. <laughs> you know, anyway, yeah. so, oh, so many. Yeah, so, the system really failed these children yes. in over and over and over again. They had no one, no allies. These no, neighbors, my gosh, bless their hearts. But like... Right. And people really gave them a lot of grief, too, because they, um, like, didn't call the police or, you know, authorities. I feel like they did everything that they could. They really, they had seen that authorities had come out multiple times and did nothing. They wanted to have enough so that when they came out, action would actually be taken. And it's just really sad that it was them calling authorities that was the catalyst that actually ended up killing this entire family you know right. what i mean well, they did call authorities after hannah came but right. nothing happened so it's like exactly. they were probably like well i know it's happened before and now we did it so let's make sure we have enough and yeah it that's was exactly the authorities that 
clued Jen and Sarah in that they were on their tail, and that's right. what pushed them over the edge. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, yeah, they should not have ever left, been able to leave Minnesota, number one, because they had gotten called. So, I fine, you don't find proof when you get there, but you've been called multiple, multiple times mm-hmm. from family members and teachers. Like, not family members, but friends of the family. <laughs> I mean, come on. Like, why... There should have been more to the investigation than just, we went out there and everything seemed okay. Yeah. And it really makes me wonder, too, how much of it was these two beautiful white women. And they thought, well, they really really are doing great things. You know? I mean, that whole... Beautiful white women suck. Yeah. (laughs) Well, they did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I also, too, like... I. the whole Sarah thing, like Jen, definitely, like we were talking about in the first case, there's always one person who is like the instigator of everything and like controlling it all and pushing it. And I definitely think that was Jen for sure. And I'm, I mean, I don't, I can't feel bad for Sarah because she did nothing to help these children. I mean, she was absolutely a part of the abuse. And, you know, even if she was just like a passive witness to it, she is still to blame. So like, I'm not going to give her a lot, but was she forced into this too? Did she even know about it? You know, I mean, these are just things that we don't know. I mean, they're all victims of something, but how, how, what was her level of, you know, guilt in it all? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's been a question for sure on that case that many people have posed. And Jen was definitely controlling the narrative of their family. Yes, absolutely. You know, with the posting and the, Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Oh my gosh. And I'm glad you did it. I hate that you did it. But yeah. I'm glad that you did it. <laughs> this is like, hmm, not, I, I, mm. <laughs> so, I like, I just want to punch the screen right now. <laughs> next week is going to be a little bit better, but it's not. It's going to be serial killers. Heavy, heavy. We are fall heavy oh in gosh. the fall right now. I'm it's just like, we just were talking right before we started recording. How we have not started researching our serial killers. We actually haven't even really pinpointed yet as of recording <laughs> this episode who we're going to do right and i'm we're not looking forward to it <laughs> yeah so, we hope you actually enjoy serial killer september because if you don't then this is not worth it <laughs> it's going to be a fun month though we yeah. are going to um do some really fun things in September. So each serial killer is going to have two episodes dedicated to them. So you're going to really get a an in-depth detailed um story of these sailors it's just the only way to do it like they're such big stories and so you know lots of victims and um so we really dive in guys (laughs) we're in the deep deep rabbit hole um on these for you but then we're also going to do some lives a couple of them um to discuss the serial killers to just hang out with you guys and do some q a and so stay tuned to our social media because we'll be announcing the details of all of that um, as it comes. Yeah, because instead of doing four serial killers, we're only doing two. Right. It'll be and like gonna... a week release, and then next week will be a live. Right. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. To yeah. Kind of and we'll throw that. some, you know, silly true crime stories in there for those lives. And um, we just, we think it'll be fun to hang out with you guys and just make it kind of a celebratory month, you know, one really dark week of gross human beings. Then we'll hang yeah. out. <laughs> yeah. I enjoyed our live last time. Oh, yeah. It was great fun. We had such fun interaction. And you guys are amazing. You're super yeah. fun to play with. We like to party with you. So, yeah. 
great fun. Yeah. So, well, thank you for voting on our topic for today. If you voted, because again, you know, we enjoyed looking at. Well, I, I enjoyed. We enjoyed quote unquote looking into these cases. Not really. Yeah, it's something different. Interesting. Yeah, it is something different. Um, brought light to different things, uh, and we appreciate clearly your interaction and. Um, we hope you come back for Serial Killer September. Tell your friends about it. Maybe this will be the reason that they enjoy listening to us. I don't know. But, and always um, rate and review. Yeah. Enjoy finding those. Check out the merch. Did you get your Serial Killer September t-shirt in time? I don't know. If you're listening now, you're not going to get it in time. No. <laughs> It'll come sometime during the month of September, I would think, if you order now. So, hurry, scurry. Hopefully you've got it. Um, and we will do, actually, aren't we going to do a merch code? So stay tuned for that. So, yes. Stay tuned for yes. that. Discount, discount merch code for Serial Killer September. And I think that's it. So always remember, the world is scary. People suck. Hide in your closets. <laughs>